When God designed the family as the foundation of culture, He did not leave its construction to chance. God revealed the blueprint clearly and convincingly. Those who listen to His voice and build according to the plan will enjoy a healthy family that creates other healthy families. Well, it's great to see a Providence family. Uh, I hope that you have had a great week. And if you're a guest with us, welcome. We are, are so glad that you have joined us on this really special weekend. Um, when, uh, when we uh, think back and we honor those uh, who by sacrifice uh, gave their life uh, for our freedoms, for our nation, we're uh, grateful. And on, that, uh, on this uh, incredibly special weekend, when we think back and we honor people. It's, it's also so fitting for us. It's, it's, it's such a privilege for us to come and to worship Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ gave his life for each and every one of us. You know, it's, it's absolutely stunning if you really think long enough about what the gospel is and what that word gospel, it means uh, just good news. And it's the good news that you and I can be forgiven of our sin because God loved us so much that he chose willingly to send his only son from heaven to earth. You see, God knew that we had a problem that was separating us from God, and he called it sin. It's when we made choices in our life uh, that, that, uh, that uh, violated God's very specific word for our lives. And so it's, it's, um, it's, It's absolutely tragic, but every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. And as a result of that, every single one of us knows what it feels like to feel shame and to feel regret. We also know what it feels like to be separated from God. We may not necessarily know how to find words that really describe it, but when there's a lack of joy or lack of peace in your life, you're distanced from God. And so God looked upon us and he saw sin separating us because he's holy and we have all fallen short of his glory. And so he sent his son. Can you believe that? He sent his son, the son of God from heaven to earth. And he lived a righteous life in this in this mess of a world. He was tempted in every way, just as you and I are. And yet he was without sin. And yet in love, in incredible love, he chose to give up his life for us. He died on a cross and he was buried in a grave and then he rose from the dead on the third day. And then he gave to you and to me an invitation. And that is that if we would believe in him, if we would say yes to his his invitation and say, God, I cannot save myself, but I believe in your son's merit and your son's righteousness and his accomplishments on my behalf. The Bible says that he actually forgives us of all of our sin. He takes away all the sin and he fills that gaping hole in our heart to where we feel we we actually have peace. And how he does this is it says that when we trust Christ, it says that his Holy Spirit comes to actually live within us. He gives us a new operating system so that we can think about new things and do things that we can even want different things. And God inclines our heart to actually want to do his will. And one of the reasons this is so important, obviously, if you don't know Christ, 
today and you're sitting here and you've never been forgiven and you're still banking and relying upon your righteousness, I have good news for you today. And that is that your righteousness will never be enough, but his righteousness is. And he wants to give all of his to you so that you can be free, so that you can have peace in your heart. But there's another reason this is so critically important to us, even for those of us who are believers. And that is that when we trust Christ as our Savior, is that he literally puts his Holy Spirit within us to confirm what otherwise the Bible would seem like, says that it's foolishness to us. And that is his very word. You see, I'm going to talk about something today that's not necessarily popular in our culture. And I'm going to say things about it to where many in the room may even feel a little bit uncomfortable. But here's the reality. If the Holy Spirit of God is living within your heart, then the Holy Spirit inclines our heart. He whispers into our ear and he says, believe this. This is true. But if the Holy Spirit is not in your heart, then the only thing you have to go on is this word in comparison to everything else that you hear, and you hear it every single day of your entire life. And so what I want to do is to pray for us. I want to pray for you. If you've never trusted Christ, you can do that today. Did you know that? Even while I'm praying, you can say, God, I admit that I'm a sinner, and I want to receive your free gift of forgiveness, and I believe in Jesus Christ, and I confess you as Lord, and he'll save you from all of your sin. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you, and as we address the family, and as we address marriage, we confess to you that your voice is not the voice that we typically hear. And so we need your help. And I pray, God, that you, by your spirit, would confirm these things within our heart, that they really are true. I pray, God, that you would help us as a body to lean into your word this morning. I pray for those who are here who do not know you, even now, would would you lead them, Lord, to trust you with their life? I pray for families who are here today who are grieving the loss of a loved one who gave his or her life for others, for us, for our freedoms. I pray this weekend that you would draw near to those who are brokenhearted. I pray that you would encourage and build up and that you would minister to them in ways that no human being can. We thank you, Father, for your grace in our life. And I pray now that you would speak through weakness and confirm these things in our heart. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are on a series. This is the third week of a seven-week series on where we're just looking at these basic building blocks that God has established, that God has chosen for the family. And so I want to show you what these are. Uh, uh, Two weeks ago, what we looked at is that God created us male and female. So we looked at gender. And then what we looked at last week is that he made us not married, but first we're single. We have to get married. And so we looked at these, this, this, uh, this uh, whole season of life uh, to where God is, God is uh, really uh, um, blessed and he is used um, in the hope that we would cultivate our life and our character for whatever he has in front of us. This week we're on marriage, next week we're on sex. And so God says, fill the earth, they have children. And so we're going to look at that. If you're wondering like, should I bring my kid? Uh, I would bring my kids. Um, they hear it everywhere, so you might as well hear it from the Bible. But I promise you that I will be careful, okay? I'm always careful uh, about things like that, and I won't be flippant uh, in, 
anyway next week. And then all of a sudden we have kids around, and so we have to parent them. And so we're going to do a sermon on motherhood, a sermon on fatherhood. And then the last one, what we want to look at is what God has called children to do, and that is to look at male and female, and to look at singleness, and to look at marriage, and to look at my mom and dad and say, you know what, I want to emulate that. I want to imitate that in the hope that they would perpetuate another healthy family that in time would perpetuate more healthy families. And so this morning as we look and at marriage, I want to ask you to turn to the second chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have one with you, there's lots of Bibles in the chairs near you. Uh, And if you don't have one at home, take that home as a gift. But as we look at marriage, I want to tell you that I'm, I'm, I'm asking you this morning to lean in. Even if you find yourself initially resistant to things that I'm saying, I want to encourage you to lean in and say, God, is this true? Help me to see in your word, is this is this true? You see, the fact is, is that if you and I merely accept the loudest voice that we hear about marriage, it won't be God's voice. You see, God could thunder with his voice, but what we find within scripture is that he typically whispers. It's a still small voice. He he normally chooses to communicate and speak to us in a way that can only be heard by those that are leaning into his word, wanting to trust, looking to trust, saying, God, is this of you? And so I urge you today, the Bible is a book, it's the word of God, and it is quiet until you read it. But once you read it, it can thunder in your heart. And so this is what he says, starting in chapter 2, verse 18, it says, And then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So what I want to do here this morning is to show you three ways that God is instrumental in marriage. And then we're going to look at three ways that we can respond to what God is doing in marriage. Okay. So the first thing that we see is this, is that God prepares people for marriage. He prepares people for marriage. And before I even show you how he does that, we need to back up just one half a step. And we need to talk about authority. Authority. You see, every single day, you and I, we evaluate the goodness of things that we see or that we hear or that we feel or touch. Already, some of you have evaluated the goodness of my shirt. You said, oh, it's a good shirt or no, I don't like it so much today. It's not good. Here in about 30 minutes, you're going to evaluate the goodness of the sermon. Some of you are going to say it was good. Some of you are going to say he's done better. It's not, not so good. Some of you, right, you've already evaluated the music. Some of you say, well, it was really good this morning or not, not so good this morning. All of us do this. The chair that you sat in, you thought this is a good chair or this is not a good chair. Every single one of us, right, we, we make evaluations 
on the basis of what we perceive to be good or not so good on everything that we see. And the fact is that we don't always agree, do we? We don't always agree as to what's good. You can say, oh, this is really good, and someone else can say it's not, not so good. There's a lot of our church family right now that's at the beach. And if we were all at the beach and I was at the beach and if I saw a man walking down the beach in a Speedo, I would say that's not so good, okay? <laughs> However, there's a lot of people from Europe, right, where, where, where a little bit less swimwear, right, is the norm and they would disagree with that. They'd say, no, that's, that's perfectly acceptable. That's, that's fine. I disagree. And so the point is this, is that we're all limited, And the reason we're limited is because we're not sovereign. We're not God. And because we're not sovereign and not God, our evaluations are not authoritative. They're not binding on everybody of what we think about certain things. But God is sovereign. God is the authority. God is the creator. And therefore, God has creator rights. What this means is that his evaluations are authoritative and they are binding on all of us. And our response to his evaluations is simply to agree. That's what's acceptable. It's to agree. He said it. I agree with it. And so what we find here in verse 18 is the very first time among many times in the scriptures. But it's the very first time that God looks down from heaven. He sees things on the earth and he says, now that's not good. And our responsibility is to agree. And the first thing that he says, this isn't good, he sees the man alone. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good. Now, what happens next is really significant, right? And, And I think the only way that I can help you maybe remember the significance is to do something that potentially, it worked okay last hour, right? But, um, you know, it can tank, right? But... We're going to work on it, okay? So if you have something in your hand, I need you to put it down because I'm going to ask you to clap after me, okay? So I'm going to clap. I'm going to do something like this, okay? And as I stop, then I want you in sequence all together to do it at the same time. You ready? Okay, I know it's big. We can do this though, okay? And if you think this is so stupid, just embrace the awkwardness. This is going to go somewhere, okay? You ready? Here we go. What's the difference? The difference was pattern, wasn't it? On the third time, it was one and four instead of one and two. Some of you, I started doing four, and all of a sudden your eyes got a little bit bigger. Like, how many times is it going to go? I have to remember this, okay? So, so there's a sequence. There's a pattern. And once the pattern changes, we recognize it. And this is what happens in Genesis. There's a pattern up to this point, and this is the pattern. God looks at something and he says, let there be light. In the very next sentence, it says, and there was light or, and it was so. Let there be an expanse and it was so. Let there be trees and it was so. Let there be fish and it was so. Let there be and it was. God's speaking things into existence. He's the creator. He has creator rights. He speaks and suddenly it's there. And suddenly there's a change in sequence. He says, I will make a helper for him. In other words, let there be a helper. We assume, if we're following the Bible accurately, that there's a change in sequence. Eve should show up in verse 19, and she doesn't. Instead, God inserts something that's supposed to make us go, what's that about? And what he does is he has them name the animals. 
He says, okay, I'm going to make you somebody. But first, I'll tell you what. You know, there's just something that's just, just in my crawl. Would you go name all these animals? I made them all, but they all need a name. Why would he do this? Well, when you, when, when you keep reading and you get to verse 20, we're told why. It says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so God wanted to open up Adam's eyes to what he already knew. And that was that every animal had a partner and a like kind, but that he was alone. Notice it says, and there was not found a helper who was looking. Adam was looking. Adam was going around finding animals in the garden and he kept finding two of them. There's two of you and there's two of you and there's two of you. And so finally, Adam, he's like, God, there's one of me. And it's at this point, once he recognizes there's a need, once God has prepared his heart to see a need, that God says, I'll tell you what, why don't you take a nap? He takes a rib and he makes the woman out of that rib. And so what we find here is this. It's a beautiful thing that God prepares. God prepares for things that are important to him. He prepares our life. He uses the seasons of our life to prepare for whatever season is next. He prepares our heart to receive. He even prepared the garden by saying, I want you to spend some time working it, cultivate the soil, cultivate faithful stewardship in your life so that when I bring somebody into your life, you can say, welcome to my healthy, non-codependent world. He prepares people for what is important to him. God met his his need before Adam knew he had a need. And this is God. This is what he does. It says, it's the Lord who goes before you. God knows what next year holds for you, and he's using this year to prepare you for it. And so we can trust God. Not only can we trust God, we can see that God prepares people for this thing that we all just call marriage. He's doing something in our life for it. That's the first thing. The second thing is that God joins people in marriage. He joins people in marriage. And so what you find in all of chapter 1 and in chapter 2 is that God is the principal mover. He's the one doing things. God creates the man. He reveals the man's need. He remedies the man's need by creating a woman. And suddenly, things turn into a wedding when you get to verse 22. It says, and God, he's like the father of the bride. It says that he brought the woman to the man. He didn't create her, drop her behind a bush and says, good luck, figure it out. That's not how it went. No, God looks at Eve who just, and he says, I want to bring you. It's intimate. It's, 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 it's incredibly personal. There's, there's no aloofness to us. It's, hey, hold on to my arm. We're going to go for a stroll. He brings her to the man. And it's fantastic what takes place. Adam, Adam like goes, he goes Broadway on everybody. He starts speaking like most men never speak. He's, he speaks in a poem. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. How I interpret all of that is with this picture, okay? He's really encouraged right now, okay? Here's Adam, right? He sees Eve and he says, okay, this is really, really good. What he says is she's like me and we're like you. And this is really good. And suddenly, God switches roles at this wedding. Those, some, some have seen one where the father of the bride is also the pastor that then just assumes the role. And this is what God does. He walks her up and he goes, hold on, Eve. And he comes over and he stands and he goes, who gives this woman a marriage to this man? And he comes back and he goes, well, I do because I just made her. And then he comes back and all of a sudden now he starts proclaiming 
he's pronouncing marriage in verse 24. This is what he says. He goes, a man shall leave his mother and his father. Now, they don't have moms and dads. And so what we find in Genesis is he's creating categories that are prescriptive for the rest of humanity to look back upon. It says this is the pattern in marriage. And when he says leave mom and dad, he's not saying eliminate the relationship with your mom and dad. What he's saying is this, is when you get married, you transfer the priority of allegiance or commitment to this person. Now you vacation with this person. You live with this person. You sleep with this person. You you endure with this person. This person. You, you leave for this person. You cleave or hold fast. The word hold fast means to grip tightly. It's fierce compatibility, fierce determination. It's, 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 it's I'm dependent upon you. It's as if you're hanging off a mountain and you're holding onto a rope and you're saying, I am not gonna let go. And there's grit. There's, there's, there's a labor to cleave to each other. And then he says to become one flesh. And some people look at this and say, oh, well, this is the sexuality part. I suppose it's one, but actually what he's saying is this, is two people are fused into one. There's a fusion of people where the two now becomes one. And this is what's amazing about this. You look in our text, and in verse 24, it doesn't say who is speaking verse 24, does it? It just says, Therefore, a man, there's no quotes. There's nothing there. The man speaks. He finishes speaking in verse 23. And all of a sudden, it's, it's almost like that there's this summary statement. And so Jesus comes to the earth. And when Jesus is speaking about marriage in Matthew chapter 19, he says that it was God himself that spoke this sentence. And two verses later, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, he says, now what God has joined together Let not man separate. Now, every single one of us who are married or are pursuing marriage, or maybe you're with somebody, you're dating somebody, there is effort that's involved in cultivating that love and that trust and that relationship. We all acknowledge that. Let me tell you a little bit about my story, okay? I grew up in Missouri, was in college in Missouri. My wife, Tabitha, grew up in Georgia. She was going to school in Michigan, and God put upon both of our heart a desire to go overseas to do short-term mission work. Short-term for her was two years, and for me it was just a little bit over six months. And so we had to go with somebody, some entity, and so we went to Richmond, Virginia, and that's where we met. There was a two-week training process. Ten days in, I told her, I'm going to marry you one day, okay? I don't necessarily recommend that for everybody, okay? And so then literally uh, met her parents and she met my parents. And then we literally parted ways. I went to Zimbabwe and she went to Senegal, Africa. And over the next two years, there was a tremendous investment uh, in lots of different ways. We, we uh, had a few times where we saw each other. But, but the fact is that most of it, it was writing. I, I would write her four or five times a week. And this is before email, okay? This is before all the cool technologies today. It would have been so amazing. And so I wrote letters, four or five letters every single week. And so we've kept those letters. She would write back as well. They're on these little trunks. And these, these are the actual letters, right? There's, there's literally hundreds of them. And, 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 and about two years later, I, I, I surprised her and her family in Paris, asked her to marry me on the Eiffel Tower, right? Get back, and all of a sudden, now we're planning a ceremony. 
Now, all of you going, wow, that's a whole lot of effort. You guys did this. You guys brought yourself together. You guys, you guys moved. And the fact is, listen, we do pursue and we do propose and we make plans and we make vows at a ceremony and pastors declare us married. The states recognize us as married, but God is the only one who joins a man and a woman to be married. God does all the joining. We don't join each other. And if we could recognize that, that it wasn't our hands that brought us together, we would be more careful in taking it apart. And that's what Jesus said. The son of God stood on the earth preparing to give his life for you so you know he's for you. And he says what God has joined together. Don't take it apart. Don't do it. One man, one woman, joined by one God in a covenant. A covenant is an interesting word. In the Old Testament and New, there's commitments and there's covenants. A commitment is where two people enter into something, a deal, and one person is freed if the other person defaults. And then there's a covenant. And a covenant is when we fuse ourselves to one another until death do us part. You see this in Malachi 2. You see it in Proverbs chapter 5. You see it in Genesis 15 where God made a covenant with Abraham. It was until death do us part. And the fact is, is that you and I both know that we live in a fallen world. In the fallen world in which we live, it creates all kinds of what if scenarios. What if he treats me like this? What if she's unfaithful? There's many of us right now, you're sitting here right where you're at, and you're thinking, you know what? I never once thought I'd be in the situation that I'm in right now. The fact is, it is a fallen world. And so I need you to be really careful to listen to this, okay? God knows it's a fallen world. So even in the Old Testament, God told us that he loved us more than he loved our marriage. He actually cares about the individuals more than he cares about the marriage, just like he cares more about the individuals than the Sabbath. He didn't create us for the Sabbath. He gave us the Sabbath as a gift for us, and the same with marriage. And so God, in his word, you can find these in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7, has sanctioned a few exceptions to protect somebody on the earth who's being harmed by adultery, abandonment, or abuse. To give freedom to them so that they're no longer bound in such cases. But make no mistake about it. God's very intention when he joins is that we will be joined until death do us part. And listen to me. If we will yield ourselves to the Lord and each other, we will make it to the end. He provides us enough strength and grace to make it to the end. And I realize that you hear otherwise every day. And I just pray that you're able to see that that there's nobody who loves you more than God. And this came from his good hands. The third thing I want you to see and hope that you'll see is that God assigns noble purposes to marriage. You don't necessarily see them in this text, but it's interesting that the rest of the Bible comments on this passage. 
You see many times, such as in Ephesians chapter 5. In fact, if you have a Bible, if you want to um, head there, I want to read it. I know that we just studied that. We just did a sermon on Ephesians chapter 5 a few months ago. But it's important because what happens is the rest of the New Testament, God is adding color to the masterpiece of marriage. Where, there, where you have writers of the scriptures and they're looking back to what took place in the garden and they're trying to understand how now to how to take what he did in the garden and apply it to now when we're all in the wilderness. In the garden there was no sin and now there's everything sin. And so how are we supposed to think about this? And the fact is, is that when you look at the scriptures and you look at culture and society, just because God has noble purposes for marriage, it doesn't mean that everyone agrees. Not everyone agrees with what his purposes are. Which is why, in very similar to previous sermons, that my inbox will be a little bit fuller tomorrow. You see, there's many people in our culture, they look at marriage as an unnecessary burden. Kind of like this picture here. To where, at one time, our sexuality needed a house. God said it was marriage. We agreed with God. And so, once that instinct clicked on in our life, it was, a, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a strong indication of, hey, you should start thinking about getting married. But now, our culture, we've rebelled against all things sexual and all things of God. And so, now the institution seems like an utter burden and just an obstacle. Why would you pull that up the road if I can get what I want without it? Other people, they look at marriage and they see it as just an enormous risk. Like you're going to Vegas and you're just going to roll some dice and you just pray to God you get two sixes because if not, the thing's going to fall apart and more times than not, you don't. And a lot of people look at marriage this way and then still others, they look at marriage like a lump of clay that spins and you can add water. It's really a, a possibility for personal experimentation. We can do what we want with it. And we can change it. It's malleable. We can, we can use it however we want. And God's very aware of all of our divergent feelings and ideas of what he has created. And so he clarified his purposes here in Ephesians chapter 5. And this is what he says, starting in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now before I read another word. You need to see there that everybody is under the obligation of submission, okay? Submit to one another, okay? So everybody's invited to this party, okay? And then he wants to tell us how it works within marriage. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There it is. There's chapter 2, verse 24. And then notice he gives clarity to it in verse 32. He says, now this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
So what we find here is there's two dominant purposes for why God created marriage, why he prepares people for it, why he joins people to it. The first is that he, he designed marriage to point people to Jesus. More than anything, more than marriage, he desires people to be saved. He wants people to be forgiven of their sin and to spend forever with him. And so what he does is he uses marriage as an instrument to point people to that. He says, husbands, your responsibility is to show the world the kind of love that Jesus Christ has for the church. And you're going to show it by how you treat your wife. And wives, those of you who are wives, this is your responsibility is to show the world the way that the church responds to the perfect life-giving leadership of Jesus Christ over us. And how you're going to show our response to Jesus is you're going to treat your husband in a certain way. You see, marriage was not a late entry in the marketing plan of the gospel. Jesus didn't rise from the dead, go back up to heaven and say, now how are we going to get this good news out? What's a good illustration that we've already created on the earth that we can just kind of twist a little bit. And all of a sudden now we can, we can leverage it for this to... No, that's not what it says. What he's saying is this, is that before there was sin in the world, God created marriage to point to the rescue. Now think about that. Think about the sovereignty of God in this. After quoting Genesis 2.24, which is a verse that took place before sin entered the world, before there's a need for forgiveness, before there was a need for rescue, he says, this is his plan. And then the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. Now I know this is going to blow your mind. That's what he means when he says this is a profound mystery. He goes, but what I'm saying is that that verse in chapter 2, verse 24, before there was any sin in the world, is about Jesus Christ and his church. You see, before we needed a rescue, God made marriage to display the rescue. And this shows us at least three different things. First of all, it shows that the purpose and participants in marriage are no more interchangeable than Christ or his church. You can't say, well, I don't want it to be like this. It's a lump of clay and we'll make it however we want and we'll use it however we want. You cannot substitute Christ from the gospel. You cannot substitute those who believe in Christ from the gospel. And the same with marriage. Second thing it shows is that the amazing lengths that God has gone to save us. That he would create an institution for our good that would point to our rescue, the ability to go to heaven when we die. And he did it before anyone sinned. And third is it shows us a portrait of what is to come. You see, Revelation chapter 19 verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, the Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. The end is about the wedding between Jesus Christ and his people, all who trust in him. And what we find there is this, is that some are invited and some are not. And those that are invited are those who have trusted them, him on the earth for their forgiveness of sin. You see, one day Christ is going to assemble every single one of us who've trusted in him at a banquet table. And he's going to say, this, this was the meaning of marriage. It was all meant to point to this. This is what I wanted people on the earth to see so that they could be here with us. What purpose? And the second purpose is God designed marriage as a gift for our good. You see, in marriage, God provides companionship that's infused with a kind of leadership and support to meet our deepest needs. Some people, they look at chapter five and they think, see, it's just terrible. The word submits in there and there's all kinds of things in there that's just... And the reason that we find that so difficult is because we cannot imagine life without an abundance of sin. 
What if your husband treated you like Jesus treats you? Would you respect him? Would you admire him? You see, this is, this, is, this is what he does. What are our deepest needs? Isn't it beautiful that he created us to meet those needs? You see, God created women with a longing to be loved and pursued. Every single woman in this room, every girl in this room asks the question, am I lovely? As we age, we ask the question, am I still lovely? So what has God done? He gives the man the primary responsibility to affirm her loveliness by acting loving to her. As unto the Lord. By saying, look at what Jesus did. He protected and provided and fed and cherished. And every single man in this room longs to be respected and followed. Every guy in this room asks himself, do I have what it takes? If I were to, to, to overhear my wife saying something to one of you about me, and if I had to have a choice of overhearing her say, I really love him or I respect him, a hundred times out of a hundred, I would say, I want her to say, I respect him. I respect him. And so what has he done? He gives to the woman the amazing responsibility and privilege to meet his greatest need, to respect as unto the Lord. You see, it really is a good gift. I realize that it's so hard to see it through all of the sin and all of the burden of our life, but it's a good gift. And so three applications before we close and sing some songs. The first is this, as a church family, let's honor the gift of marriage. Let's honor this amazing gift. Let's see it good. It's, it's good and kind purposes that God has for us. He is for us in this. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And the way that we show honor towards marriage is in how we prepare for it and practice it and protect it and pray for it and talk about it to other people. The second thing as a church family, let's grow in our admiration for Jesus Christ. This is important because the New Testament frames all of the instructions of how to be a husband and a wife under the umbrella of the assumption that you revere or admire Jesus Christ. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, God recognizes that our motivation gets interrupted when we are not acting lovely or respectable. And so what he does is he tells us to keep one eye on Jesus as we're responding to our spouse. And Jesus says, look, in this moment, I recognize that he's not acting worthily or she's not acting in a way that garners like loveliness. And yet, I want you to treat this person like I would treat them or like you would treat me. And so for husbands, what does this mean? It means we use our God-given strength and leverage it for her good. It means we take our strength and we leverage it to point her to God. To remind her of his promises. It means we take our God-given strength and we practice cultural expressions that affirm a woman's dignity. It means we open a door for her. And what does it look like for a woman? He says the word submit. Obviously, in all of this, submission has limits that you find within the scripture. If it's going to harm you, it's going to injure your purity or injure your integrity to the truth, then he says, no, you can't submit. You first have to submit to God. But I think what he's saying is this, is that even though a man's maturity will affect motivation, God intends for wives to give their husbands space to steer, to affirm him in his highs and his lows, 
and that you would show respect to him in such a way that garners his desire to live respectively. It's to treat him in such a way that he wants to, he wants to rise to the occasion to actually meet that kind of honor, that kind of affirmation and encouragement. And the last thing is this, is let's lean on the gospel providence as we try to display it. Years ago, I was asked by a married couple to tell me, I'm sorry, I asked that married couple to tell me the cause of their strife. They came in, they sat down, it's okay, tell me what's going on, what's the problem? And they simultaneously responded with each other's name. This is the problem. You're looking at him, you're looking at her. Listen, Providence, healthy marriages are healthy because the people in those marriages learn to confess and cancel sin. The only lever that's strong enough to lift the wrath in our own heart is the same lever that's strong enough to lift the wrath that was in God's heart towards us, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you forgave you. You know, in the 1850s, I was reading this week, in the 1850s, that there was a 48-mile stretch of railway that was laid in Panama, and it was laid at a time, obviously, 150 years ago, before photographs from the sky, before modern technologies, and even before a reliable map. And what we now know is um, that it appears to have cost more in uh, in dollars and in human life than any other railway that's ever been built. And the reason for that is because in those 47 miles, it required 170 bridges. 170 bridges. Marriage is a perpetual bridge-building project. You find yourself almost every day or every week on opposite sides of a chasm. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace can bring you together. You see, the gospel is the fuel for all of these things. And so I urge you, I urge you as a church family, let's honor marriage. Let's grow in our admiration and let's lean on the very gospel that we're trying to emulate and show to other people. For the good of your family and families in the future, I urge you this morning to consider the word of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace in our life. And we confess to you our vast need of mercy. I pray for those in the room that are longing to be married. I pray that you would continue to prepare them for whatever it is that you have in front of them. I pray for those who are married, that you would sustain them with grace and hope and truth. And I pray for those who wish they weren't married that you would move in their life in such a way that you would do a miracle that could only be accounted as the grace of God. So would you protect and all that was not of you today, help us to forget all that was of you. Would you confirm in our hearts that this is your word for us? As we sing to you now, as we give to you, as a response of our admiration and affection for you. We say we love you. We trust you. We need you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.